0: Almighty God, um, we give you many thanks for this privilege of digging into your word. And we pray that um, you would help us, um, lend us the spirit that we might uh, understand and hear and be encouraged. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, So, the structure of the class is... I'm going to talk, I'm going to give a very brief introduction to eschatology, and then we're going to dive into the book of Joel, and we're going to do um, almost a verse-by-verse commentary, running commentary, and actually the two are related because the main theme of Joel is eschatology from beginning to end, and so I'm going to sort of, you know, use the book of Joel to pause once in a while and talk about something in eschatology and, uh, and we're going to do this for three weeks, three sessions. And so there's going to be a lot of like circling around and talking about different things. But as you'll see, that actually is quite fitting to um, what I think the Bible is trying to explain in terms of eschatology. It's just three chapters. Today we're going to look at the first one and a half chapters, so half of the book. Even though it's a three weeks of class and even though I'm going to spend the first chunk talking about eschatology. The reason is because the first half is actually relatively... Um, light and material, the, the, all the prophets in the Old Testament have the same structure, which is that the first half is about doom and judgment and destruction, and the second half is about grace, renewal, um, rescue. And uh, that's always more, uh, the, the imagery and the, and the thoughts are more complicated and dense. All right, so here's my introduction to eschatology, right? So first, I want to take a step back. And I want us to think about just even the idea of history. Um, and there are two, broadly speaking, two views of history, which is that history is a circle and history is a line. Um, all other worldviews, philosophies, religions have essentially a cyclical view of history, which is that history repeats itself. Um, it just goes in loops again and again and again. And. Basically, that means that nothing truly changes and we're stuck in a loop. Right? There's no direction. Um, there's no permanent change. Uh, this was um, absolutely the pervading view in the ancient world uh, surrounding Israel. Right? If you look at uh, the Greeks, if you look at the Egyptians, if you look at all the Mesopotamian area, everybody had a cyclical view of history. The Bible uniquely has a linear A line view, or I think a better way to describe it is the Bible sees history as a story. This is very unique. Um, Because we live sort of in a Christian era, that makes sense to us, but that was like a profound insight, um, a profound different view in the ancient world. So here's the story, right? All stories have the same basic structure. You have the beginning, you have the middle. You have the end, right? Um, pretty basic. And uh, this, and I want to say that the structure of every good story is exactly the same. So every story that you've ever heard um, has this basic framework. The beginning of the story is the world is at peace, the world is good, and then what happens is something disrupts that beautiful world. There's some sort of problem, some sort of villain, some sort of um, threat to that world. And then the end of the story is that that threat is eliminated, that that sort of uh, evil is reversed, and then you have this restoration in this beautiful new reality. So the example I want to give here is Lion King, right? Disney's Lion King. The beginning of the story is the Pride Lands, is all this harmony and peace. Mufasa is talking to Simba about the circle of life. And then what happens? Scar, the evil uncle, usurps the kingship, kills Mufasa, and the Pride Lands are thrown into chaos and, and injustice, but then what happens is, the end of the story is Simba, who is the son of Mufasa, he comes back to the Pride Lands from his exile. He has this climactic fight with Mufasa, and then again the Pride Lands are restored place of beauty and goodness. And In fact, you see this exact same um, scene where uh, uh, Simba and Nala have a, have a cub child right, and it's being raised by Rafiki. So the story of the Bible and and I think here's, here's, here's a, a, another thought which is a, a secondary thought which is that uh, the reason why all the stories are the same is because um, it echoes the one true story and the human consciousness has this sort of longing and memory of the one true story that we just play out and tell over and over and over again. But the one true story is the story of the Bible. And the beginning of the story is creation. God created the world. Everything is good and beautiful, harmonious. Everything is right in this world. But then what happens is, sin comes in and mars God's beautiful creation. Um and then the world is turned upside down. Death, injustice, and <laughs> evil. Um, and so God then uh, institutes this rescue plan, and so we see the rest of the story is the story of Israel. Starting with Abraham, and he plants pe- his people Israel in a new Eden, the land of Israel, but what happens is that the people continue to rebel and they, re- they, they replay out the drama of what happened back in Eden. And so uh, uh, destruction and uh, disintegration is happening again. But then what happens is the second half of the story is you have the prophets. And the prophets start to speak about the end of the story, how God is going to redeem all things. And then this is where the, uh, the prophets in the Bible talk about the day of the Lord. We're going we're gonna to talk about this for three sessions. The day of the Lord. That's how the story is going to end. It's going to be the fulfillment of all the promises. It's going to be this climactic, beautiful ending of the story. If you couldn't go back to the Lion King, it's when Simba fights Mufasa. That's the day of the Lord. And then from that point forward, just like in the Lion King, it's a happy ending. It's this beautiful restored world and so you have forever and ever the new heavens and the new earth. Um and so eschatology is about the ending. that make sense Um, it comes from the Greek word eschatos which means last eschatology is the study of last things and therefore if you understand it like this this is what eschatology is eschatology isn't some weird esoteric strange aspect of the bible (laughs) Um, but it is the central message of christianity right It's what Christianity is all about. The end of the story is what Christianity is about. That's the whole point, right? Um, And so eschatology is a source of joy, it's a source of hope. Christians are constantly asked and, and commanded to think about it, to meditate on the end of the story, to rejoice and to feel renewed by thinking about it. And I also want to say that scripture is thoroughly eschatological. So it isn't just like the book of Revelation, which we sort of think of classically as a book of end things. The whole Bible, from Genesis, every book of the Bible is about eschatology because every book of the Bible is talking about this basic framework of the story, that there's this beautiful ending coming. Um... But what happens is that the frequency, there's two handouts, Um, but what happens is that the frequency and the detail of eschatology explodes um, in the prophets. Does that make sense? Um, So we're going to look at the prophets, and we're going to look at one book of the prophets, the book of Joel, but in fact, all of the prophets talk about this end of the story. And let me just say this as well. All of the all of the prophets and every book of the Bible talks about the end, and they all use both similar and dissimilar language. And what I'm going to try to convince you and persuade you of is that they're all talking about the same thing. They're all talking about the day of the Lord, and all the dissimilarities is basically this constellation of events that can all be wrapped up into the single event called the Day of the World. Does that make sense? So I'll, I'll, I'm going to keep repeating myself all throughout the real session, so you'll see. All right. So let me also say that this way of understanding eschatology is a corrective to popular theology, <laughs> um, what we see in the popular culture. And um, the, the movie that I'll sort of uh, cite to help stimulate thinking about this is the movie This is the End. Right, with Seth Rogen and um, James Franco. And the movie is actually a parody of what is understood to be the popular Christian view. So it's not a fair treatment, but nevertheless, it, pr- it presents in very stark ways the reality of what is essentially understood to be the Christian view. And I want to show you that that view cannot be. That, 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 that's not incorrect, Right? Um, So the view is basically this, right? God created the world, (laughs) right? Good and beautiful. And then the middle of the story is that the world is just getting worse and worse and worse and worse. Right? If you uh, remember the movie, (laughs) um, you know, there's like, uh, there's like evil things happening. There's like this, there's like this parody scene of the exorcist. Um, There's like, there's you know people pandemonium. There's rioting. There's shoplifting. People are like hurting each other. Then there's like dragons and demons and everything. Everything. The whole world is going to hell, right? And what happens is, what's the end of the story? The end of the story is the rapture, and the rapture is basically this escape. And the way the movie depicts it is, it's this blue light. That, that hits you and then you're like raised up and then Whitney Houston's uh, uh, what song is that? Um, uh, uh, I Will Always Love You right? That song goes on <laughs> and then and then you're lifted up right? And um, it's, there's, there's uh, the movie I, I, I didn't like the movie too much because there's a lot of bathroom humor but um, there were some several scenes that I thought were fairly funny like there's this one scene where one of the characters is being raptured And he's so happy that he's being rescued. Nobody else is rescued. So he's like throwing out obscenities. He's like, you know, mocking everybody. And then the blue light fades and stops. (laughs) (laughs) And then he falls back down. Um, And then the the ending of the story is... um, Sorry to ruin the movie to you, but... uh, It's not that important. But the ending of the story is there's these two friends. They love each other. But only one friend is being raptured, right? And then so... He's holding on to his good friend. He says, I'm never gonna let you go. But then he says, I'm gonna I'm gonna keep you from heaven. So he lets go. He sacrifices himself, and he's falling into the mouth of this demon, and then the blue light picks him up, right? And so 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 that's the story, right? And is this the Christian story? The world's going to hell, and we're gonna be raptured out to heaven. And the answer is no. That's incorrect. This is the correct story. Um, Because the Bible doesn't describe our redemption as above us, but ahead of us. Does that make sense? The happy ending isn't waiting for us up in heaven. The happy ending is waiting for us ahead in time when there's going to be a renewal of all things. Okay? So, I would call this, I mean, what theologians have called this is (coughs) two-age theology. Right? So... Two-age theology is: you have this age, which is um, this present evil age of injustice, of um, wickedness, and this age is temporary and passing away, and then there is the age to come, which is going to be forever and ever. This is the language of scripture, by the way. Um, So it's two-age theology, not two-world theology. So two-world theology would be like this. So two-world theology is, um, this is heaven, this is earth, and one day we're going to be rescued up into heaven. Right when they were going to be raptured up into heaven. Um, but then otherwise, the earth goes to hell. The earth falls apart and becomes destroyed. Um, rather, the Bible articulates a two-age theology, not two-world theology, where you have this present evil age, but then the renewal and restoration of all things, meaning this earth. That's why the Bible says the new earth. Um, the word new doesn't mean new as in completely different, like... My old car got destroyed, now I have a new car. But the language of scripture is that new means renewal and restoration. So when the Bible describes us as new creation, it doesn't mean we are destroyed, and a new, improved Michael now stands in his place. It means that I, who is broken, am being restored and renewed. Does that make sense? So redemption is not above us in heaven, but it's ahead of us in a new earth. Our rescue, therefore, is not vertical, but it's chronological. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's a really big, deep topic, especially because I'm sort of uh, pitting it against the popular understanding that's articulated in media and so forth. Are there any questions? No, that's an interesting distinction, yeah. but uh, why does it matter? <laughs> it matters because if this is your eschatology, then... Why should you rearrange the chairs on the Titanic, right? The Titanic is going down. What does it matter? So I often hear this rhetoric, life on this earth versus life in heaven. So that life on this earth, life on earth, is temporary, it's passing, and therefore you just bide your time and you're waiting for the blue light to come and and, uh, swoop you out. But if you believe in two-age theology, then life on earth absolutely matters. Because it's this life that's going to be restored and renewed. Right? And so, um, everything you do is consequential, meaningful, and beautiful. The Bible says that everything evil and wicked and perverse will be destroyed, but everything good and beautiful and glorious will be carried over into the next life, into the next age, and it'll last forever and ever and ever and ever. So everything you do, every little act, if it's to the glory of God, if it's for um, his name, um, if it's an act of justice and beauty, that will last forever. It'll never end. So, that's, so that's it's like question. the fulfillment and continuation of all your redemptive work. That's right. That's right. In this age. That's right. That's right. Any questions? Yes? So, and this is why I'm in this class, because I don't know if my understanding is correct. I'm spreads. so hot now. Is anyone else hot? <laughs> Um From John, question. <laughs> John I, I put it at sixty-seven, so you just have to push the down button until maybe bring it down to sixty-two or something. Yes. So my understanding of end times, yeah. which could be totally off base, yeah. is that our world's gonna get more sinful mm-hmm. and horrible and rebellious mm-hmm. and then God's just Knew the earth as it is, but like the things, I guess I sort of have heard that, that things are going to get worse before they're going to get better, and it seems like what you're saying is that that's not... No, so this view has all kinds of different camps, right? So there's some people who think that this view is like this. Um, I don't want to touch <laughs> the teachers, I want to be respectful. So, so there are two views, right, which is here's creation, and and then this is sort of the story of Israel, but now with the church, it just gets better and better and better, and then it shoots up, right? That's sort of the graphic uh, presentation. Um, This would be called post-millennial view. The the other view is that it it is sort of like this, and then here's the end, and then this beautiful creation, right? So it can go in two directions, like are things improving or are things getting worse? Mm -hmm. There is debate. But, the, but between the two camps, this would be called post millennial, this would be called amillennial, there's an agreement that the end of the story is the day of the Lord and then the new heavens and the new earth. So it could be both. Right. Well, even this, what I would call the rapture view, um, uh, even this way, a lot of the rapture view people would, wouldn't embrace that as well. Because they would say, well, no, there is this as well. It's undeniable in scripture, but the way it's, so I'm talking about the way it's presented in popular media. The way it's understood by um, everyone who thinks, oh, that's the Christian hope. The Christian ending is rapture. The Christian ending isn't rapture. Um, Yes? Um, So I think the rapture theory or whatever comes from that, it's it's the verse where Jesus says, two will be walking and one will be left behind or something. So for people that don't interpretations that don't believe in the rapture, how do they interpret that verse? Um, I'm trying to recall. I can't recall. Okay. <laughs> um, I mean, the classic uh, interpretation, I mean, the classic passage that supports the rapture is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where it says, we will meet the Lord in the sky. Um, I've actually had many, many classes where I talked about that. Um and that's a good question. I'll have to think about it and I'll get back to you. The I'll next be here session. next week. Yes, good. <laughs> Does this church believe in the rapture? Um the 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 question about the rapture is the question about definitions. So what do you mean by the rapture? Do we yeah, mean before things get really rough, everybody who loves Jesus will be taken away. Uh, no, I don't believe okay rapture. Does the Presbyterian church believe in it? No. Any other questions? <laughs> so the events about Satan ruling the earth for a thousand years, the seven blah blah blah. Is that all part of the in between or? It, it, yeah. Is so the the, the, the rest of the, of the story point? is there's the rapture, and then there was there's what's called the thousand years, right? And then there is the new heavens and the new earth. That's the completion of the rapture theory, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the thousand years. What I'm trying to say. Thousand years is this? Okay, so it's took me a little bit. Give me three weeks. I will prove to you that thousand years is the day of the Lord. Okay. Any other questions? All right. All right. So let's let's dive into the book of Joel. I fully recognize that we may not be able to hit everything. Um, so I'm fully at peace with stopping this way. Uh, but I hope to get to at least right. verse. 12, I think, is where I talk about the day of the Lord. All right. No, verse 15. All right, so uh, here's the setting of the book of Joel. Let me graphically draw it for you. I will say this. Um, This view is the classic Christian view that has been um, taught and subscribed to for 2,000 years. The rapture view is 150 years old. So that should at least make you feel like it, it's uh, the burden of proof is on that, right? Any case, um, so the book of Joel, right? The book of Joel, the setting is this. Um, a terrible locust plague has happened. Has recently happened. And now the the, the writer of Joel, the, the, uh, the prophet Joel is reflecting on that. And he says that it's a harbinger, it's a foreshadowing of the, a future disaster called um, what he describes as this invading army. And both the locust disaster and the invading army are pictures of what he ultimately wants to talk about, which is the end of the story, which is the day of the Lord. So they're all echoing each other, right? So we're going to talk about the locusts, we're really talking about the invading army, we're really talking about the day of the Lord. The veil are described as an invading army, much like the locusts, all right? So I don't know if that makes sense. All right, and I gave you this wonderfully good cartoon uh, strip here. I actually gave you a portion of it. It's from the Bible Project. If you guys uh, type in Bible Project into YouTube, they have wonderful, wonderful book summaries of each book of the Bible. So I really like their summary here of Joel. I, I actually completely agree with them on this, on, on their reading of, of Joel and um, the way uh, it's structured is that the first one and a half chapters is two parallel poems the first poem is about the locusts and then the call to repentance and then the second poem is about this invading army and then the call to repentance and then the second half of the chapter is this long meditation on the day of the Lord which we'll look at <laughs> in the next two weeks All right. so let me just read the verses and then we'll go All right. Um, number one the word of the Lord I came to Joel, the son of Petuel. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. What the, coding, what a, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. So let's talk about locusts. Um, okay. By the way, does anybody know the difference between locusts and grasshopper? <laughs> locusts lie. Uh, incorrect, but good, good guess. They're the same. They're the same, but there must be a difference. That's very aggressive. Nope, that's a good <laughs> guess, too. Locusts come the swarms, grasshopper is not fall. Grasshopper is a singular, that's right. <laughs> just a oh. grasshopper. Um, locust is this phenomenon that happens relatively rarely, but somehow—I I mean, someone can um, tell me the biology of this—but suddenly they like multiply like a million billion, and then they swarm. So swarming grasshopper is locust. right? Things you learn as urbanites, right? Um, so why, why, why locusts, right? So it goes back to the Mosaic Covenant. So God spoke to his people through Moses on Mount Sinai. And he said that, I'm taking you to the promised land. If you obey me, you will prosper and live in the promised land. If you disobey me, then curses will fall down on you. The book of Deuteronomy, the last several chapters, is all about blessings. Um, The land will prosper, land of milk and honey. And then curses, right? And one of the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, specifically listed, is locust infestation. So that the locust is going to destroy the goodness of the land. If you remember in the story of the Exodus, the locust was the eighth plague. But this time not against the enemies of Israel, but it will be against Israel itself. And I want you to appreciate, it's hard for us as urbanized, but what was it like for an agricultural society to experience locusts? Devastation. Um, locust was basically, it would, be, it would look like a black cloud. And it's just a billion insects and then they would land on your field. And after a few seconds or minutes, everything is gone. And it's really hard to describe how devastating this is. And the way the book of Joel describes it is it was unprecedented in living history, in living memory. Right? For multiple generations, no one had ever seen a locust infestation like this. Um, and, and what would happen is, after locust infestation, uh, if it was widespread, there would be famine. And with famine, people would die from starvation. So you have to understand the heartache, right? When you see this locust infestation, you basically know people are going to die. And they're going to die in a horrible way, die of starvation. Um, then what, ha- what happened is in the wake of a locust infestation, there will be um, millions upon millions of rotting corpses of the insect bodies left behind. Then the disease would spread, so it was really a horrible situation. Um, right now, we, we don't have locusts. Uh, the reason is because... Um, and, and so I read a little bit on this on Wikipedia. Um, we have satellite technology, then we have pesticides. And so I believe the last locust infestation was in the Middle East in the like, 1940s or something like that. But we basically eradicated it. So it's, it's no longer a modern problem, which I guess is an amazing good thing. Even if there was locust infestation, we just ship our apples from Argentina, right? <laughs> So verse 5. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine. Because of the sweet wine, for it is cut off from your mouth, for a nation has come up against my land, powerful and beyond number. Its teeth are lion's teeth, and it has the fangs of a lioness. Listen to the description of the the locust. It has laid waste my vine and splintered my fig tree. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it down. Their branches are made white. So this is telling um, the people, why did God send the locust? Why did God send this devastating disaster, this calamity into their lives? And the answer is, so that the people might wake up. The people had fallen into complacency about their sins, and they, they didn't realize how dire their situation is. So this is a wake-up call. Um, God is trying to arouse his people and to warn them and it reminds me of that uh, famous C.S. Lewis quote he says God whispers to you in your pleasures but he shouts to you in your pain so God is bringing pain because he wants his people to wake up and notice that he addresses first of all drunkards Um, and you have to understand that um, in the prophets is poetry and so everything has these rich poetic imagery and a drunkard was particularly oblivious to the dangers around him, um, and so what the Joel is saying is rather than rather than mirth or the forgetfulness of alcohol, people should be weeping. People should be wailing. Listen to the next imagery, verse eight: lament like a virgin wearing sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. So this imagery is very startling, right? He's, um, he's calling on virgins. The, vir- the word virgin there is referring to brides. He's saying brides wear, wearing sackcloth. So you have to imagine the imagery, right? On the most joyous day of her life, which is her wedding day, instead of wearing a beautiful wedding dress, she's wearing a sackcloth, which was a sign of mourning. She's mourning because her fiancé, her bridegroom, has died. And so it's this stark you know, contrast. The happiest day of her life should be it's the saddest day of her life. Right, um, verse 9 the grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord the priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord the fields are destroyed, the ground mourns because the grain is destroyed the wine dries up and the oil languishes so in verse 9 it says the grain offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord that's the temple because of this destroyed harvest there are no more sacrifices that can be made at the temple because there just isn't any food and so this is an especially poignant sign of God's judgment on his people. Verse ten, it talks about grain, wine, and oil are no more. These are the basic necessities of Mediterranean life. Basically, life collapses, right? You know, um, human life falls apart. Verse eleven Be ashamed, O tillers of the soil. Wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because of the harvest of the field has perished. The vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, pomegranate, palm and apple, all the trees of the field are dried up and gladness dries up from the children of man. And so tillers of the soil are farmers. And he's describing the shock and the despair of farmers. You know, imagine that your entire life's work is destroyed in a moment. I sort of imagine, what would be the equivalent? What if I had a catastrophic computer failure that... That, ex- that cascaded even to my online backup. And all of my notes, all of my sermons, everything is destroyed. I'd be like, oh, i weeping and wailing, right? Um, that's what that's what they were experiencing. I'm probably belittling what the farmers went through to <laughs> draw that parallel. Um, imagine your house is destroyed and you don't have insurance. Um, that's what the people are going through. Verse 13. Oh, so so now in verse 13, where the second half, of the cycle. The first half is this description description of doom and disaster, now the call to repentance. Um, wow, we're making good time. I think I might get through this. All right. Actually, I should open up for questions. Um, any questions on the destruction, the locusts? All right, let's go on. Let's press on. Uh, put on sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Go in, pass the night in sackcloth. O ministers of my God, because grain offering and drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God, and cry out to the Lord. So he talks about having a fast, he talks about wearing sackcloth. By the way, does anyone know what sackcloth is? Yeah. Yes. So sackcloth is basically what you're wearing now is fairly comfortable clothing, but sackcloth is very uncomfortable. I sort of imagine it like this: this potato sack. Um, So it's uncomfortable, but it's unbecoming, and it's just this way of expressing your sadness, right? Um, So the people, so so these are outward signs of remorse and repentance. And I just want to pause here and and reflect on this. I think there's something really deep that Scripture is talking about. That these deeply felt emotions, they want to be expressed outwardly. Um, So the Bible is calling us not to stifle our emotions, um, not to allow just a single silent tear, (laughs) but these outward expressions deepen and complete what you're going through on the inside of your heart. And, And... so the, the the ancient world had all of these sort of um, rituals that were not false rituals, but they, but they helped and guided your sense of mourning, right? Um, and let me also reflect here on repentance. I think that uh, maybe the next main theme of Joel is repentance. In light of this disaster of the locust, in light of this judgment to come, the people are called to repent. So it's this extended call to repentance. And here I want to say that the human heart naturally hates to repent. Um, a lot of times my children um, go through some kind of conflict or they do something bad. And so Christina and I sit down with them and we try to help them and guide them to apologize. And it is a deeply traumatic experience for our children. I don't know if you guys go through that too. Um, they don't want to repent because to admit fault, to say that I'm wrong, to look squarely at um, uh, uh, what you did was evil, is painful, right? Um, to recognize our flaws and our capacity for evil. But here I want to show you that Christianity says that repentance is actually the gateway to joy. Right? Do you want to be truly happy? Let your life be filled with repentance. In fact, the Christian life is a life of continual repentance. And so let me show you, th- show you this graphically. And this is one of my favorite graphs. I feel like um, if, if, if this is the only thing you remember from this class uh, lesson today, I'm pretty happy with that. Um, which is, I think when you become a Christian, you realize um, how holy God is. So you think, this is God's holy standard. Let me just put holiness. And then you realize how sinful you are. And when you realize there's this gap, that is how you become a Christian. Because you realize, how can this gap be bridged? Only by the cross. Right? Only by the sacrifice of Jesus. But what happens as you mature and grow through your Christian life, what you thought of as this incredibly high, unreachable standard of holiness and righteousness and integrity of God, you realize you've vastly underestimated it. And as you grow as a believer, it begins to grow and grow and grow until you realize how holy is our Lord. Simultaneously, as you reflect upon yourself, you see the evil of your heart, the the, the the twisted and divided motivations that drive everything that you do. That it's all for self glory, all for self gain. Um, you realize that your estimation of your own sinfulness was far too high, and so your 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 estimation of yourself goes down and down and down. And so what happens? The gap grows, and your need for the cross increases, right? So the cross becomes bigger and bigger, and so. This is why repentance is the gateway to joy. Um, if you're a non-Christian, your happiness is dependent on your self-identification as a good person. But if you're a Christian, your happiness um, is dependent on how deeply you can fall into the loving arms, the merciful arms of your father. Does that make sense? All right. Uh, verse 15. So this is what I would definitely wanted to get to. Alas for the day, for the day of the Lord is near. This is the first of five references to the day of the Lord in the book of Joel. There's 19 references to the day of the Lord in the entire Old Testament. Joel has the most of any one book. Um, There's about a dozen references to the day of the Lord in the New Testament as well. So we'll look at all these references throughout the three sessions. So alas for the day, the day of the Lord is near. As destruction... From the Almighty it comes. It is not the food cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God. So let's talk about the day of the Lord. And as I said, the day of the Lord is how human history is going to end. Um, And it's the resolution to the tension of the story. Um, The story has tension, like all good stories, like all good stories, right? The tension of the story is twofold. First, what do we do with all of this evil and injustice that we see in this life? It seems to go unanswered. It seems to go unaddressed. God seems to be allowing it to continue. Right? And so there's all these cries for justice. Is there not justice? Because this life is there are evil people They use their evil and wickedness to advance and gain power and crush the poor and the weak. And then they get away with it. And then they stay in power. And that seems like the story. And so the, the that's the tension. And so the day of the Lord is addressing that tension. The second thing is what about the rescue of God's people? God's people who are crying out, rescue us, O Lord. Save us. And so the solution to both problems is that God will draw near. Um, and so therefore the day of the Lord is both judgment and salvation does that make sense? simultaneously when God draws near it will be terror for evildoers and it will be rescue for God's people Salvation judgment together. Um, there's a there's a the I feel like the uh, the archetype the, the best example of that in the Bible is the Red Sea crossing. If you if you remember back to the story of Exodus, God's people are fleeing from slavery and destruction in Egypt, but they reach the Red Sea, and they're about to be crushed because Pharaoh has sent his chariot army to retrieve and and destroy the Israelites. So what does God do? God parts the Red Sea so that the people can escape and then once the people cross, cross over, the sea collapses and drowns Pharaoh's army. So a single event, salvation destruction, salvation judgment. Um, so what I want to do is I want to read through multiple passages of the Day of the Lord. I think they're beautiful poetic passages. It's the flip side of the page if you guys turn over. And uh, we'll see what we can Learn and I think I just I just love the poetic beauty of these passages. I just wanted to read them and revel in them. They're very dark passages, um, but they're very beautiful, nevertheless. All right, Zephaniah. Let me read this one. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud. There, a day of wrath is that day a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty, lofty battlements. I will, bring, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like the dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. In the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all of the inhabitants of the earth. And so, uh, I want to sort of keep a running track of the description of the day of the Lord. So it's judgment, it's salvation, it's wrath, the wrath of God. And you'll also notice in verse um, 16, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry. So there's a climactic battle. We'll look at this, maybe the third class. That's an important element. There's a battle on the day of the Lord, okay? Let's keep reading Isaiah chapter 13. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. So let me just pause right there. So what do you see? What's another element of the day of the Lord? The heavens will be darkened. We'll look at that, I believe, next week. Um... 11, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. So there's another description, right? The heavens will be darkened. There will be the earth will be shaken. Right? Zechariah 14. So, uh, I told you, it's both judgment and salvation. I wanted to hear and then accent some of the salvation elements of it. Zechariah 14 is actually this extended passage that talks about both judgment and salvation. I eliminated all the judgment uh, verses, and I'm just highlighting the the salvation portions. Verse 1. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. So it's this beautiful image, right? Jerusalem is the city of God, the city of salvation. Water, living waters flowing out. Uh, Verse 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth. This idea of renewal, this idea that this good and righteous king, right? Imagine Aragorn coming back to Middle Earth, right? And establishing this righteous rule. Imagine think about the coronation scene in the Lord of the Rings, verse 20 and on that day there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord and every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts so verse 2021 20, um is so stunning i wish i had so much more time to tell you how stunning it is how you should be flabbergasted because that expression holy to the Lord do you know what that is if you if you go back to um, to the torah right if you go back to leviticus there's a, there's a description of what, the high priest. Um, the high priest is the only one who's allowed into the holy of holies. So everything, everything on his clothing is telling you he's distinct, he's separate, he's set apart. And he has this uh, met, a gold plate on his on his hat. I'm not sure you would call it a hat, but his headgear, right? Um, and it says, "Holy to the Lord," right? And what does it say? It says there should be inscribed on the bells of the horses holy to the Lord. So, not just the high priest on this future day, but even horses. Something so common, something so mundane, something so far away from the high holiness of the high priest will have inscribed on them holy to the Lord, which tells you what? Everything is holy to the Lord. Right? everyone Will be will 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 be in the presence of God. Listen to verse twenty one. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of Hosts. Pots and um, and vessels uh, uh, that were holy. What, what is that describing? It's describing the special um, utensils, special ceramics that were in the temple of God. Right? Those were holy. Those were reserved. But now every pot, every vessel will be holy. Do you remember in the book of Revelation it says that the streets are gold, right? That's not just saying, oh, we're going to live in this gilded (laughs) age or in a sort of like, um, you know, monopoly where where money is flowing. No, remember inside the temple, everything is covered in gold. But now it's not just the temple. Everything, the whole city, all of God's people. So this is an amazing image of beauty. Let's go to uh, Malachi chapter 4. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So I want to focus on verse five, because that's really amazing. Malachi, which is the last book of the Bible, tells us that before this day of the Lord comes, 19 references, 18 references now to the day of the Lord, Malachi tells us, oh, and before this day comes, God's going to send, Elijah the prophet, as a forerunner. Who is Elijah the prophet? Who is this? John the Baptist? Huh? John the Baptist? Yes. In fact, this very passage is cited when John the Baptist comes by the Gospels. Therefore, what is the day of the Lord? It's the ministry of Jesus. All right? Now... I sort of feel like this is the moment when in the movie The Matrix, right, Neo wakes up and he's told the reality of things, and this is how I imagine it, (laughs) right? Your head should be spinning a little bit, okay? (laughs) Because what does that mean? It means that the ministry of Jesus is the day of the Lord, right? Elijah the prophet will come before the day of the Lord. But this complicates the picture. Why does it complicate the picture? This beautiful picture that I just told you, why why does it complicate it? It's in the past. Where's the new heaven and new earth? Thank you. Where is the new heavens and the new earth? Where is this beautiful end? Where is this climactic battle? Where is the destruction of evil? Why does evil continue to go on? Why does death persist? Why are there tyrants? Why is there suffering? What is this day of the Lord? That's the issue. Do you understand? And so the New Testament is bristling with this tension. The day of the Lord has arrived. Where is the day of the Lord, right? Because if you look at, for example, Second Peter chapter three, it all kinds of passages talk about the day of the Lord as still future. So First Peter, Second uh, Peter three. Listen, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed that's familiar language we recognize this but it says it will come in the future like a theme you have no idea when it happens and yet we, we know the day of the Lord has come in Jesus in fact Jesus is coming fulfills so much of what we expect in the day of the Lord what is the day of the Lord? it's the rescue of God's people it's God drawing near lives on the earth with his people. That's right. So Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord, and yet the day of the Lord is yet to come. So we're going to talk about this tension for the rest of the three weeks, but let me give you some preliminary thoughts. So here I want to talk about something called New Testament eschatology. So you have Old Testament eschatology, which is mostly in the prophets, which is talking about this climactic day of the Lord. That's going to resolve all the tensions. It's going to answer all the problems. It's Simba fighting Scar. But then once you get inside the New Testament, it talks about Jesus as having inaugurated the end of history, and yet it's still coming. But the fact that Jesus has inaugurated the end of history means, listen to this, right? You're about to take the red pill. Um, We are now, listen to me, we are now living in the end of history. Amen. Right? Right? So we are here. Where are we in the story? At the end We're at the end. Okay? Um, don't don't go back like cipher. Stay with me, right? So the difference then is that in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord is a single event. But in the New Testament, what is the day of the Lord? It's stretched out, right? It's stretched out for many, many, many. How many years has it been? It is now 2,000 years, this single day. We'll talk about why that should even be. There's a a great passage. And so this is the analogy that would give. And um, scholars, theologians, describe it as prophetic horizon. So when you're standing, let's say you're standing far, far away from this mountain range. And so you see this mountain range, right? And all the peaks look like what? They're together. They're the same distance. So you have all of these peaks, and it's a single mountain range when you're looking from far away. But as you get to the mountain range and you enter the mountain range, what do you discover? The peaks are all far apart, miles and miles and miles apart, because now you're inside the mountain range. So the day of the Lord, therefore, once we're inside the day of the Lord, we realize that all of these clusters of events, judgment upon evil, doers. You know, earthquakes, skies are darkening, um, The salvation of his people—you know, the, the Lord coming near—these are all separated out. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So, here's the the new timeline. Then, so this is the beautiful story, except this is the end of history. Jesus and the church. This is his first coming, and this is his second coming. Does that make sense? So that's the end of the story. That's the end of history. We are inside the end of history. I mean, so we are inside the end of history, and people say, well, I'm confused. And this is, I think, partly why um, popular eschatology has muddled things. Because when you think end, you think end meaning there's nothing left. But when the Bible talks about the end, it's talking about the end of God's salvation story. Does that make sense? But right now, but, but so there's two kinds of stories. There's God's redemptive salvation story, and then there's chronological history. Does that make sense? We're not at the end of chronological history. 2,000 years have passed by since the coming of Jesus. So we're confused. That can't be the end. But it is the end in terms of God's story in the Bible. Because God's story in the Bible is just this. It's the story of salvation. Does that make sense? So, the end times is not some future event. We are in the end times. Okay? Um, So, the the New Testament describes, uh, the New Testament talks about this all the time. In the last three minutes I have, let me just read it to you, right? That the last days are not ahead of us, but we're inside the last days. Listen, okay, just three verses. Hebrews chapter 1, it's not printed for you, so just listen. Hebrews 1, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but listen. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Hebrews 1 tells us we are in the last days. Listen to 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. We are inside the last hour of redemptive history. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, meaning the prophets knew that the Messiah was coming. Christ was foreknown before the foundation of the world, listen, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. This is it. The salvation history that Israel was longing for, waiting, when is the end coming? Mm -hmm. And the end is here, and it's happening. it's been stretched out because it's this mountain range. We just didn't realize the peaks are far apart. Any questions? All right, let's pray. (laughs) Um, Almighty God, we thank you for the richness of Scripture. We pray that... um, We pray that uh, these things would not be controversial for its own sake, but rather affirming, encouraging, delightful, uh, leading to holiness and prayer and repentance. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.